Okay, well, I'm back again. Sorry, you get more of me today. Uh, my name is Matt. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Now, things over the next few weeks are going to be a little bit different. Not too different. Don't want to be too different. Just a little bit different. Uh, it's going to be a slightly bit more interactive. We're going to give you guys a bit of time to talk at different sections with each other. Not up the front, don't worry. Uh, so let's start that right now. Now, here's some rules. I'm going to put a two-minute timer on the screen. You can talk during that two-minute timer. I'm looking at this row. When that two minutes is up, <laughs> I don't want to have to be the school teacher has to get your attention again. But let's start with this question because we're in this series, Longing. Here's the question. Is there something more than this? As in, is there something more than just the here and the now and you need to back it up with a why or a why not. Go. You got two minutes. Okay, bring it back. <laughs> Not bad. Well done. Well done. Uh, now, I suspect that for many of us, if you're in this room today, then you either believe there is something more or you're at least open to that as a possibility, that you're agnostic to it. Uh, and you wouldn't be alone because, uh, in fact, the majority of Australians believe there is something more. So McCrindle Research, which is a big research firm in Australia, on behalf of the Centre for Public Christianity, conducted a major survey back just a couple of years ago in 2021, uh, surveying Australians' openness to the existence of a range of spiritual realities. And so here's some of the results. And so asking the question, uh, are we more than just a physical body, as in do we have a soul, here were the results. 75% of people said yes or likely. And so most of us think that we're made up of more than just the physical. What about the question, is there a God or a higher power? 
Well, only 18% of people said no or unlikely. The other 80% were at least unsure, and about 70% were yes or likely. And there's the question of life after death. Is there anything else after this life? Well, here's the results. About 75% of people said yes or likely, and only about 8% were unlikely or no. Really high percentages there. But if you dig a bit deeper into this question of whether there's life after death and ask the follow-up question, is there a heaven and a hell? Well, you start to see some interesting results. Now, it seems like people are all on board with the idea of heaven. (laughs) Who wouldn't be? A mate of mine told me he was at a funeral a while ago and the, the guy that did the eulogy at the funeral was a, was a hardened atheist, but at the end of his eulogy, he sort of looked up as if he was looking up to heaven and said, mate, you're in a better place. Like, we, we love the idea of heaven, not so much the idea of hell, though, do we? Except, you know, for Hitler and people that disagree with us on social media, of course. <laughs> uh, and so most Australians have a feeling, maybe even a longing, that there's something more. Now, if you ever need uh, something to put under a computer to lift it up a bit, you know, for ergonomics and that sort of stuff, I would suggest this book. Uh, it's called A Secular Age by Charles Taylor. It's, it's a very thick book, isn't it? It uh, comes in at about 900 pages. And it, it's a, one of those books you can't read like a normal book. You can't sit in bed reading it. It's just too heavy. You sort of have to have it on a desk and read it like a, a textbook. Uh, But it's been described as one of the most important books uh, of our lifetime. Um, And it's one of those books that's been so important that other books have been written about it to try and summarize it and explain it for the rest of us who just can't hold that much information in our brains. Now, uh, Charles and Tim both own a copy of this. This is Tim's copy. You can see he's a bit over uh, halfway through it. I don't own a copy of it. I I have a copy of the summary, one of the summaries, so maybe that sort of sees the difference between Charles and Tim and myself. Uh, But that book is seeking uh, to ask a question. And, you know, it's a complicated question because it takes 900 pages uh, to answer it. But here's, here's the question it's seeking to ask. It says, why was it virtually impossible not to believe in God in, say, 1500 in our Western society, while in 2000, many of us find this not only easy, but even inescapable. Or in other words, if you go back 500 years, and pretty much for all of human history before that, pretty much every human being believed in a God or a higher power. In fact, it was nearly impossible not to do that. Whereas now, fast forward 500 years, something has changed And what is it that's changed over the last 500 years in our Western world where people now find it easy not to believe in God? That's the question. What has happened over the last 500 years that has reshaped our beliefs? And can I suggest that this is a really important question for all of us to ask, whether you're religious or not, because none of us have uh, live in a vacuum. Uh, That what has come before us as culture and individuals, what has come before us has shaped everything that we think and we believe. And so we need to understand what those things have been that have shaped us as a society and as individuals. So let me try and diagram out uh, 
I'm a visual learner. I love diagrams. I love visual things. So hopefully that will be helpful for you. But let me try and diagram out uh, Charles Taylor's answer to this. And so have a look up at the screen. Now, for all of human history, up until about 500 years ago, humans have seen the world as consisting of two spheres or, or two realms, two frames. You have the imminent frame, as in the natural world around us, that what you can see and touch. And then you have the transcendent frame, the, the spiritual world, that, that which transcends the here and the now. And we have, for all of human history, up until the last 500 years, thought ourselves as being vulnerable uh, and exposed to the spiritual realm. And so in the forest, there was ghouls and ghosts, and under rocks, there was, there was demons. And so we would need to make sacrifices and offerings to appease these gods and spiritual forces, both good and, and evil. But as well as being vulnerable to the transcendent and the spiritual realm, we would also look up to it to find our meaning and our purpose in life. But all this started to change with the coming of things like the Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution and the Industrial Revolution and then Modernism and Postmodernism and now Individualism. Now, if you don't know what all of those isms are, basically they're just fancy words for uh, the cultural ideas and the, the technological advances that have happened over the last 500 years that have really shaped and transformed the way we think and the way we act. Now, it's because of these things uh, that we no longer see ourselves as vulnerable to the spiritual realm like we once were. We've become self-sufficient in how we think. And so we found no need for the transcendent. And so we've got rid of it and replaced it with the worldview of naturalism, that all there is is the, the here and the now, the natural world, what we can touch and see. But in getting rid of the transcendent or the spiritual realm, no longer do we look up to it for our meaning and our purpose. Instead, well, we've started to look inward to ourselves to find meaning and purpose. And, and so you get philosophers saying things like, the meaning of life is whatever you ascribe it to be. Or there is not one big cosmic meaning for all. There is only the meanings we each give our life, an individual meaning, an individual plot, like an individual novel, a book for each person. Well, here's my favorite one by the French philosopher Albert Camus. The literal meaning of life is whatever you're doing right now that prevents you from killing yourself. Now, the French have a great way of putting things really starkly, don't you? You can just imagine him smoking a cigarette through the, the smoke. Yeah, that's the meaning of life. And... It makes sense, doesn't it? If in the end, all there is is the here and now, there is nothing outside of ourselves and our, our life on this earth, well then really the meaning of life is just distracting yourself until you die. On that cheery note, let's stop for a minute. Here's another question to discuss with the person next to you. Try and do it in twos or threes. Don't do it in bigger groups. You won't get it, all get a chance to speak. Question is, what do you look to for meaning and purpose? in your own life. Go for it. Two minutes.
Okay. Bring it back again. Who here is a fan of making pros and cons lists about things? Three people, good. Um, I love making a good pros and cons list. Sometimes I write it down, sometimes it's just in my brain. But I think it's important when you're thinking about big things like this, like a world view, that you figure out, well, what are the pros, what are the cons for it? And so here's some of the things I came up with. Now, I think there's some great things about a world view like this. One of them would be uh, that you have the freedom to make up your own meaning and morals because you're not bound by any external things like, I don't know, a god or something like that. And so therefore, well, you get to decide how you live and how you behave. It also uh, comes across as very open-minded and tolerant, doesn't it? Because we all get to have our own truth. You can have your truth, I'll have my truth, and we can all live in harmony together. But I think there's also some cons, some problems with a worldview like this. Uh, if there are no moral absolutes then there really is no higher authority than the self. Or maybe flip that around the other way. If there is no higher authority than yourself, well, then there are no moral absolutes. There is no absolute right and wrong, good and evil. Therefore, it means that there is no bigger meaning than what you can create for yourself. I don't know if you really want that. Be limited by only a meaning you can create for yourself. And also... It it means anyone who believes that there are moral absolutes, it makes them oppressive and, and hateful, in their opinion. But I also think there's some inconsistencies. You need, always, when you're thinking about a worldview, you need to see, is it consistent? And here's some of the inconsistencies, I think, that come up. Firstly, uh, claiming there is no meaning or moral absolutes is a moral absolute. It's like saying, there's no such thing as ultimate truth except for the statement, there's no such thing as ultimate truth, of course. And smuggled into the claim that there is no meaning really is that freedom is the ultimate meaning. And above all that, it's, it's not really true to say that you are free to make up your own meaning in life. We're all limited by so many things. I hate to break it to you, boys and girls, but not many of you are going to, if any, no one is, going to be grow up to be the President of the United States. You are not free to be whatever you want, no matter how many participation medals you won when you were in primary school. And one is a strong word there. <laughs> we have many limitations on us, don't we? Where we were born, who we were born to, our genetics, how much money we have, our intellect, our height, our, our coordination, so many different things will affect what we can and can't be. And so to say, say to someone who was born in a refugee camp, I don't know, in somewhere like South Sudan, and then is going to die in that same refugee camp, say to them, you can be whatever you want to be. It's just not true, is it? We can't be whatever we want to be. And for those who think they have and become their true self, have you noticed that so often their true self just looks quite a lot like a lot of other people who are all following that same fad. Basically, if you had to sum up what our culture believes is the meaning of life, it's, it's been called expressive individualism. Now, what is that? Well, here's a definition. Expressive individualism is every relationship or obligation, personal, relational, religious or communal, is merely and only an enhancement of the primary commitment to personal flourishing. 
The primary commitment is personal flourishing and everything else is there only to serve that purpose. Or to say it another way, expressive individualism is the commitment to individual freedom and autonomy over everything else. It's about being the true self. And so people say things like, the most important thing you can do as an individual is to throw off the shackles of exterior expectations and be true to yourself. Human flourishing occurs when we cast off external norms and look within ourselves to find and foster our authentic self. Here's a question. Is expressive individualism all we need to flourish as humans? You've got two minutes. Go for it. Okay, bring it back. Cultural commentator uh, Mark Sayers helpfully points out that for our lives to flourish, to, to really have human flourishing, we, there's actually three things that we need. Uh, he, he calls them tanks. Uh, he, he talks about the freedom tank, that uh, the fact that we are individual people, that we need to have freedom to make, well, at least to some extent, decisions and choices. We, we need a, a certain level of autonomy. Uh, then there's the relational tank, that we need to be connected relationally to others, to our family, to our friends, to our community. Uh, and thirdly, there's the meaning tank, that our lives need to have a, a meaning and a purpose that is bigger than ourselves. And he, what he points out is that these uh, three tanks form an interconnected system. Uh, in other words, that there's only enough water to fill up one of these tanks, and, and really, for it to be healthy, water needs to be flowing through them, and so each one needs to be about a third full. And so, for example, uh, we, all, we need individual freedom, but we're also relational beings, and so we need to limit some of our 
freedom so as to be in relationship with other people around us. Uh, if we were to become too codependent on others, then we'd limit some of our freedom uh, and wouldn't be able to make decisions and, and express differing opinions. But we also need a sense of meaning. And so to, in order to have that sense of meaning, we need to limit some of our own freedom so as to uh, be bound by something that is of a higher authority than we are. And so there needs to be a balance between uh, these three tanks. The problem is that in our Western culture, with its focus on this expressive individualism, uh, we are told that to be happy, to flourish as a human being, what we need is more freedom, to be your true self. And so our freedom tanks are overflowing, but it's come at the expense of our relational and our meaning tanks. Now, in a system, uh, you need to have inputs and outputs. And when it comes, uh, you know, so water can flow through that system. And so we need to ask the question, well, what are the inputs and what are the outputs of a, of a system like expressive individualism? Well, if the, the inputs are individualism, materialism, as in all there is is the here and now, and hedonism, as in the highest good is personal happiness, well, what do you think the outputs in our culture are going to be? What's well, going to be things like isolation and loneliness. We've never been more connected as a human race, and yet we've never been lonelier and more isolated. Depression and anxiety. Again, we're more anxious and more depressed than we've ever been in human history. And meaninglessness and discontentment. We have choice, so much choice, and yet we have discontentment. And so Sayers concludes like this. He says, Our tanks of freedom are overflowing, bursting at the seams, yet our tanks of meaning and the relational are dry and empty. The output of such a lopsided system is isolation and an increasing mental health crisis of escalating levels of depression and anxiety. The expansion of choice anxiety and information overload has created an endless sense of confusion and lostness. Okay, that's a lot to get your head around. Let's stop again for another couple of minutes with a person next to you. I'll give you two options here. You can do it this way. Which tank, your freedom, relational or meaning, is full in your life at the expense of other ones? Or you can flip it around the other way and say, which one of these three is empty in your life at the expense of the others? And then part two of the question, just because you need it, always need a part two, what have been some of the outputs of this? Of your tank being empty, what are some of the outputs? Or of your tank being full, what have been some of the outputs? Go, I'll give you two minutes.
Okay, bring it back. Lots of discussion on that one. That's good. Okay, so where does this all leave us? Where does this leave us? Well, I want to suggest that it leaves us with a sense that something's missing, that the world is just a, a bit flat, that there's a longing that there must be something more than this. And so we try and find the transcendent, but we look for it within the imminent frame. And even, when, even though we've got rid of the transcendent, we, every now and then we still get glimpses of it in our lives. In like the, the birth of a child or the death of a loved one or, you know, when you have those, those mountaintop experiences, those, those, experience, those breathtaking experiences of beauty or, or love, something like that. But it's even sometimes in the midst of even those experiences that deep down there's still this, this niggle that there must be something more than this. And so even though we have given up on the transcendent reality, we haven't given up on transcendent feelings and experiences. Instead, we look for transcendence within the imminent frame, which only exposes the smallness of our reality and intensifies the sense of loss. And so what are we meant to do with this longing for more that I think deep down I suspect we all have? What are we meant to do with it? Well, the Apostle John, who was one of Jesus' disciples, uh, he wrote one of the four biographical accounts of Jesus' life. It's called the Gospel of John, who would have thought? And he wrote his gospel to a Greek audience. Now, in ancient Greek philosophy, what they were searching for was this thing called the logos. That's what they called it. Now, what is the Logos? Well, in Greek philosophy, it was the divine reason implicit in the cosmos, which was ordering it and giving it form and meaning. Or in other words, it was the thing behind everything. That's what they were searching for. And so John, as he starts his gospel to this Greek audience, starts by speaking about this Logos that they've been searching for. And so in John 1, he starts this way, he says... In the beginning was the Logos. Now, in our English translations, it's been translated word. Uh, but behind that is this, this Greek word, Logos. In other words, before there was even a beginning, the Logos was already there. But then John takes it a step further, and he says that this divine reason that's implicit in the cosmos, ordering it and giving it form and meaning, was with God. And so in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God. And so you have God, and you have the Logos together before the beginning. But then he takes it even a step further, because he says, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He, that is the Logos, was with God in the beginning. And so the Logos wasn't just with God, he wasn't just God it was like, like, like he was just an impersonal force. It's a person, a, a he was there with God in the beginning. Now, let's just try and put all this together. It's a lot, bit of a concept there. And so this thing that's behind everything, the logos, the reason it's a, uh, explicit, sorry, implicit in the cosmos, ordering it, giving it form and meaning, the logos, well, it existed before the beginning. And it was there with God, and it was God, but it was a person, not a thing. But then John does something that 
just breaks all the categories apart. So a few verses later in verse 14, he, he says this. He says, the Logos became flesh and made his dwelling among us. John says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see that? The Logos became flesh, put on humanity, and made his dwelling among us. And so John says to his readers, you know this, this thing, this Logos that you've been searching for? You don't need to search anymore because he put on flesh. He became one of us. He made his dwelling among us. Or to put it in the language that we've been using today, the transcended God, transcendent God, has entered into the imminent frame to reveal himself to us. And so we don't need to keep searching to try and figure out what is meaning, what is purpose, what is God. We have a, the God who has come to us to reveal himself to us. Now, who's John talking about as he says this? Well, he goes on in the rest of his gospel to explain who it is. It's Jesus. And the claim that the Bible makes is that it's only in the transcendent God who put on flesh the person of Jesus Christ that we can truly actually have the freedom, the relationship, and the meaning that we've all been longing for. Remember those three tanks we talked about before? And so freedom. Is it possible that the, the freedom that our culture tells us that we need and is the most important thing is actually the thing that ends up enslaving us? Is it possible that the, the thing we need freeing from, in the end, is ourselves? In Jesus, there is true freedom. Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And then there's relationship. We're relational beings. Uh, we, were, we were made to be in relationship. And all of our relationships in our lives are meant to point us to the ultimate relationship with God, the God who made us. But so often what we do with those other relationships is we elevate them to the place of God and then put a, a weight and a burden on them that they cannot live up to. In Jesus, we have a relationship with the God who made us, the ultimate relationship, and he's the only one who can bear the weight of our expectation. What about meaning? Ultimately, everything that we seek to put our meaning and our identity in in this life is unstable and fleeting, isn't it? Careers are going to end. Beauty will fade. People will die. We need something that's unchanging, something that's secure, something that's sort of infinite value, which is worthy of our love and our worship. A meaning and a purpose that nothing in this life can take away uh, in something that transcends this world. And so ultimately, Christianity isn't a philosophy. It's not a principle to live by. Ultimately, it's about a person. The transcendent God, transcendent God who puts on human flesh, becomes one of us so as to reveal God to us. And so that longing for more that I think we all have is meant to point us to that transcendent God who for our sake became one of us so that we could know him. We could know freedom, we could know relationship, and we could know meaning in him. How about I pray? And then you guys over lunch can talk more about this. Father, I, I thank you that in your son, 
we have the, the Logos who put on human flesh, made himself one of us so that we could see you. Thank you that your son reveals you to us. Lord, I pray for all of us in this room, whether we've been on this journey for a long time or whether today we're starting to consider it for the first time, that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would use these deep longings that we have as humans to point us to yourself, the one in which there is freedom, relationship and ultimate meaning. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.